Often, I think, people assume I am something I am not. My childhood was spent making dens within rhododendron bushes in the hidden corners of landscape gardens and wandering the woods full of baby pheasants being fattened up for the shoot. I had lake shores to paddle in and a dinghy that we bumped down the field to the private beach. My dad was a forester on a small country estate. It's the middle of nowhere, people said when they visited. If it was nowhere, then there was a lot of it, and it was all mine. I roamed the hills, listening to my Walkman, a modern Bronte sister, while my brother skinned rabbits on the wall as tourists slowly drove past. Written down, it sounds slightly ridiculous. Well, that's what it was like. And of course, it wasn't all mine. None of it was. I didn't realise that only the very wealthy, or sometimes lucky, had this kind of life. I was stepping in the footsteps of the upper classes, with access to the kind of views that nature writers and landscape painters have been describing for hundreds of years. I had unlimited access inside the walls of a managed affluent landscape, which now people pay a fortune to holiday in, let alone live in. But stepping in the footsteps of the upper classes did not mean I wore their shoes. Our lives ran parallel but our worlds were very different. My brother and I played kick the can and rode our bikes too fast over the speed bumps, racing with the plumber's kids, the farmer's kids, the electrician's kids. But I can count on one hand the number of times I saw the children from the big house. They spent most of their time away at boarding school. As I grew into adulthood, I worked as soon as I could. And at 13, I started saving up. For what, I didn't know yet but I knew our family didn't have property, savings, or a business to fall back on. And yet, this upbringing seemed to come with a class ambiguity that I still can't put my finger on. When I talked about the lake, the garden, and the treehouse my dad built, people assumed we had money. We did not. When I talk about the estate, people assume I had a connection with the landowners. There was one, to some extent, once. For a time, they threw parties for the estate residents and their families but the gap grew large enough for the eldest son of the estate not to recognise me when I served him in the local pub. Did other communities in rural areas feel the same? Did growing up with access to so much nature change the way I looked at the world, or did it change the way the world looked at me? When my dad became the estate forester, we were given a house, a lodge house no less, almost as grand as a manor house, with bay windows and a round castle-like turret. But of course, it was much, much smaller than the big house. It was a tied cottage, which meant we didn't pay rent, and my dad's wages reflected that. For seven years, my brother and I played in the gardens, made rhododendron perfume to sell to the visitors, and swung on an old tractor tyre underneath a beech tree. But things were changing. When I was 16, the estate decided not to employ a forester anymore. Dad became self-employed, and we started paying rent. Looking back, it was a time of transformation. There were blurred lines between the old sepia lifestyle and the new digital era, in more ways than one. I had no idea that the way a rural community was held together was changing. Big landowners were modifying how they made money. They no longer needed a workforce in the same way. It was possible to make more money letting properties to families like mine than providing households with jobs.
Or better still, letting the houses out to tourists, for which you could earn the same in a week as you would have otherwise in a month. For better or worse, communities that have grown up for generations providing for one family, one name or one business, dispersed. Tied cottages are mainly a thing of Britain's past. They were abundant for hundreds of years, springing up to facilitate a whole range of rural industries. 